to The Nashville Story. I'm Stuart Deming. Joining me today is Joey Bryan, the historian and communications manager of Nashville Steam. Joey Bryan is a native of Franklin, Tennessee. Joey has a passion for saving America's industrial heritage. He earned a Bachelor's of Arts in History from the University of Alabama and a Master's of Arts in Public History from MTSU. Joey Bryan, thank you so much for coming here on The Nashville Story. Uh, Let's learn about some trains and the history of trains here in the city of Nashville. Sounds great. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, Well, the history of railroading in Nashville really dates back to uh, 1845, uh, when the Nashville and Chattanooga Railroad was first chartered. Um, And that was a group of businessmen, local businessmen in Nashville getting together to really make a um, industrial rail line from the cities of Nashville to Chattanooga. And that was mainly to link the Cumberland River with the Tennessee River. Uh, Rivers, back in the early days of railroads, were the guiding force of where they wanted to go. So by connecting the Cumberland to the Tennessee, you had uh, more uh, access to those, the river or the cities along those river routes. Also in Chattanooga, you had two other railroad lines coming in. One, the Memphis and Charleston, uh, which would connect the... uh, port of Charleston with the Mississippi River. So yeah, also could double your potential um, uh, exports for that as well. And then further south, you had the Western and Atlantic Railroad, and that was connecting Chattanooga to a new town called Terminus. That was the southern terminus point or the terminal point for the Western Atlantic, and Terminus became Atlanta, Georgia. Okay. So that's kind of the the really the guiding factor of early railroads was what other markets they could connect to, you know, whether by rivers or new cities, that sort of thing. So the Nashville and Chattanooga Railroad, Charter 1845, took a few years to get funding together. They started construction about 1848, 1849. The first locomotive arrived here to Nashville by riverboat from Cincinnati that was named the Tennessee. And the first trip, inaugural run of the Nashville Chattanooga Railroad was 11 miles all the way to Antioch. Um, so, and then from there, it went to Murfreesboro and then on and on down the line as they could build the trackage. And then it fully reached Chattanooga in 1854. How, uh, how much did it cost to build that rail, rail line from Nashville to Chattanooga? I, I'd have to look up the specific number, but it was in the millions, which I mean, back, you know, and today would be the tens, if not hundreds of millions. And that route, as we all know, if we've driven I-24 from Nashville to Chattanooga, uh, it's very mountainous. You know, they had to really conquer those, um, the curves that go into the mountains. And then they had to bore a 2,200 foot uh, tunnel um, at Cowan, Tennessee to access or get through the mountains. And from there, uh, they would go down to Bridgeport, Alabama, over to Georgia, and then back up to uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee. So kind of a very longer, snakish way to get to Chattanooga. But for the railroad, that was the best possible route. In fact, the original, I think maybe 90 or 95% of the original route that was first built in the 1840s from Nashville to Chattanooga is still in use today by CSX. Oh, wow. That's very cool. Now, was this, um, uh, was this used by or was this built by enslaved labor? Yes, uh, the railroad did use enslaved labor primarily for um, boring that 2,200-foot tunnel in Cowan, as well as the hard labor of track laying, that sort of thing. Um, So, yes, they did very much use enslaved labor back then. Now, with the the steam engine locomotive that came in from Cincinnati, uh, how did they get that off the boat? Uh, Very carefully, I'd imagine. Um, There is a kind of a sketch drawing that I assume appeared in a local newspaper back when it was delivered and it just showed rigging, um, basically lifting the locomotive off the, the riverboat and then I guess swinging over to where the tracks they had laid uh, nearby to get it over to the Nashville and Chattanooga Railroad line. Okay, very cool. And so then you have uh, the Nashville Chattanooga line and then in the 1850s you have the Nashville Louisville line or the LNN line. So what's the history behind yeah. that one? So Louisville, Nashville was chartered in, let's see, I think 1849, 1850 in Kentucky. And their initial goal uh, was to get from Louisville to the Tennessee state line in the direction of Nashville. With all these kind of early railroads, they kind of would 
name themselves what they wanted to connect to eventually and then kind of work out how to do it along the way. So, and then in 1851 or 18, early 1850s, they got a charter from the state of Tennessee to extend the line from the state line down to Nashville. And the first train for the L&N rolled in um, in 1859. And that was a much um, smoother, flatter route compared to the Nashville-Chattanooga. And for whatever reason, I happen to know um, that line from Louisville to Nashville cost around $7.7 .7 million to build uh, back originally. And that was probably cheaper uh, than the Chattanooga line due to the fact there's not many mountains compared to the Chattanooga line. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And then how was the, how was the train industry impacted by the civil war? So the civil war was the first military conflict to really utilize the railroad. Um, Cause the railroad by then had only been around for roughly 30 years or so, but really was a significant factor for the last maybe 15 in terms of enough trackage and equipment built and able to actually pull, um, you know, equipment and, and that sort of thing from town to town. So the civil war was the first true military conflict to see, well, what can the railroad do, you know, for both you know, our side and their side, that sort of thing. So the national Chattanooga in particular was really a heavily battled over because it, it, kind of just happened to be, well, I will say a lot of the military um, goals was to capture the local rail line and use it to their advantage. So um, a lot of uh, early battles and even later battles took place around railroad junctions, that sort of thing. Um, so with the Nashville and Chattanooga, you had the Battle of Stones River in um, Murfreesboro, what would later become the Nashville, Chattanooga, and St. Louis, you had a whole bunch of battles and skirmishes between Chattanooga and Atlanta, including the Great Locomotive Chase of 1862, uh, Battle of Tunnel Hill, um, just everything along that line. Um, so it was really just um, constantly going back and forth between who could control the railroad, and then if they were losing control of that area, um, the receding force would essentially destroy the railroad so the incoming force could not utilize it. So then they would be responsible for rebuilding the railroad and then just went back and forth between construction and destruction and rebuilding versus tearing down. Um, so it just was a constant struggle um, for the railroad to um, operate. You know, in the meantime, that's why the U.S. military stepped in um, as they acquired these railroads in the south, especially, and they made them part of the U.S. military railroad. So that was a big thing in Nashville is both the L&N and the Nashville Chattanooga Railroad became a part of the U.S. Military Railroad. Okay, and then what happened with the rail, railroad during Reconstruction? So for the Nashville and Chattanooga, um, a man named Edmund Cole, who was an officer in the Confederate Army, um, took control of the railroad, and he really brought it back to life, so to speak, because Nashville and Chattanooga was really key between the two cities, um, and because they had two river cities there's a lot of goods and transport going back and forth so by the end of the war the nashville and chattanooga was we'll say usable but not in the greatest of shape so they had to rebuild that line but because of the you know the, the war-torn years of um, between 1861 and 1865 a lot of other railroads that had sprung up in and around nashville were either in horrible economic shape or declaring bankruptcy so Cole took it upon himself to basically grab as much of these other side railroads as he could and form um, a bigger railroad company for himself. And he also recognized that in order for the company to truly succeed, they needed to reach outside of the South. So he acquired the Nashville and Northwestern Railroad, eventually the Tennessee and Pacific Railroad, and then the Memphis, Nashville and St. Louis Railroad. And in 1873, he um, or the company uh, re-identified itself as the Nashville, Chattanooga, and St. Louis Railway. So that was their goal to get to St. Louis, the Mississippi River, open up transport and um, markets to the north. So while that was happening, they had acquired the lease for the Western and Atlantic Railroad, which was uh, owned by the state of Georgia. So that extended them all the way to Atlanta. Well, Cole, realizing if he just kept going, he could get to the Atlantic Ocean directly, was in discussions to um, 
lease what would eventually become the Central of Georgia Railroad and reach Savannah. So it was his kind of dream to have this, this, this large regional railroad that would connect Savannah, Georgia to St. Louis, Memphis, you have Atlanta and Chattanooga in the middle and really become the largest railroad company in the South. So was he considered like the Rockefeller of the South? It's hard to say he was the Rockefeller, um, mainly because his dream was stifled and it never really came to fruition. Okay. Um, I think certainly that could be said had it not been for the hostile takeover of the Louisville and Nashville. Uh, we could talk about that if, uh, in a second. But Cole really had, um, he was a great businessman, a great negotiator, because I mean, all these other outside businessmen kind of had the same idea to, you know, conglomerate these railroad companies into one company and really tackle the, the, the transport market. And I think he could have done it um, had it not been for outside intervention. So what happened with the hostile takeover of the Louisville and Nashville train? So when the, um, the railroad had renamed themselves Nashville, Chattanooga and St. Louis had not actually reached St. Louis yet, but they were in the process of either going to lease or take over um, a branch of the St. Louis and Southeast Railroad through Kentucky, which would have given them full access to St. Louis. Well, the Louisville Nashville Railroad was their direct competitor, and they had been growing on their own respects kind of to the north, and they also found a route to Memphis as well. And they realized that if we don't do something, you know, these, you know, this Nashville company might just, you know, buy us out someday. So uh, Vernon Stevenson, who was the first president um, of the railroad, was essentially run out of the state um, because he was a big proponent of the Confederacy and, and seceding, that sort of thing. Um, and because he was a businessman, they made him, a, uh, I think, a colonel in the Confederate Army and gave him you know, a fort or, or something to look out over. Well, as soon as Fort Donaldson fell and it looked like Nashville was in trouble, he got out of there. He, he got his private train together. He was down in Chattanooga, and he was kind of ran out of the state after that. So Stevenson had moved up to New York after the war with his family. So the LNN approached him and the other major stockholder and said, look, either you sell it to us now or we build parallel to everywhere your railroad goes and we'll knock you out of business. So Stevenson and the other stockholders sold, and um, LNN became the uh principal stockholder of the National Chattanooga and St. Louis Railway. Now, it's pretty, if you go back to the newspapers those days, there was a huge uproar over this, huge uproar, because it was basically Louisville's Railroad versus Nashville's Railroad. And the, the paper companies very much sided with whatever city, you know, they were in at the time. But there was a lot of concern that the LNN would come in and just shut down the NCNCNL, absorb everything, and they would lose their home railroad. So it got to the point where the LNN basically said, okay, we'll let you operate as an independent subsidiary of us. You have your own board, have your own operations, but at the end of the day, you know, you know, we own your stocks and we um, are the ones who dole out the cash, you know, to your future. And they did allow them to keep the connection to Atlanta, the connection to Savannah that fell through after the LNN takeover. And then LNN took the St. Louis connection for themselves. So it really kind of limited where the NC and St. L could grow from there. And then, uh, so that all happened in the 1870s, give or take, all of that little? 1870s, 1880s. Yeah, the hostile takeover took place in 1880. Okay. And then in uh, 1900, you have the building of Union Station in downtown Nashville. What's the history behind this significant building? So um, Union Station was an idea of, I believe, I think it was John Thomas, I think is the president of the NCNCNL's kind of dream was to rebuild the train station. Because at the time they were using Union Depot, which was along what is currently Church Street. And it was a cool building, you know, it was very much of the time. It was uh, kind of a Gothic uh, architecture, uh, had turrets and, and um, kind of spiral looking things. Uh, if, you, if you'll ever see old photos of Civil War Nashville and the rail line, um, that building is there. So it operated basically from 1860 all the way up until 1900. 
So it already it started to show its age. It was clearly you know built for the primitive railroads, not the new railroads. It didn't really represent what Nashville wanted to become. They wanted this you know grandiose structure that was really a welcoming point to the city. So they the railroads heavily invested both their time and energy in the Centennial Exposition of 1897, um, and they kind of used that as a springboard to be like, okay, look. All these people have come here, you know, they've seen what we can offer. Let's build them a train station that is, um, you know, exemplary and really identifies what Nashville wants to be. So they use the exposition as a springboard to start construction of the Union Station, but they needed the, the finances of the LNN to make it happen. So it became Union Station for the two major railroads that operated through Tennessee. Um, they started construction, I want to say 1896, somewhere around there, maybe maybe immediately after the, the exposition ended, um, but it opened um, October of 1900, and there was a huge parades, you know, fanfare, a week, weekend of festivities. Um, uh, all the dignitaries came in, Augustus Belmont, who was uh, either CEO or head of the board for the L&N Railroad came down. He's who the uh, Belmont Stakes horse race is named after up in New York. Um, so all these dignitaries, all these big names came down for this ceremony. Uh, and it became really the gateway to Nashville for the next 50 years or so. And then uh, how was it used? How was the railroad system used for the two great wars in Nashville? Well, it was all about um, moving troops and supplies to and from. So of course, with World War I, it was all about um, you know, making that, that transport as efficient as possible. And when World War I happened, it was really at the height of the railroad wars in the country where you know, they were very much about themselves, not really wanting to work with one another. So the government had to step in and basically seize all of the railroad companies and become the US Railroad Administration just to ensure there was no bickering and they could move troops from A to B without, you know, in the middle somewhere or something going wrong. Um, that did not happen, thankfully, in World War II. Uh, they were able to work together to the point where things were moved around efficiently. And um, with World War II and the NC and St. L, um, the government was very concerned about U-boat traffic um, along the coastline. So they were concerned about fuel tankers and cargo ships being either you know blown up or hijacked, that sort of thing. So a lot of crude oil and aviation fuel was moved using the rivers. And if they couldn't use the rivers, they used the railroads and the NCN St. Elk included. And the number of um, tank car loads that the NCN St. L pulled in the early years of the war I think increased by either one or 200%, something crazy like that, just to get all these fuel lines moving across the country without having to go along the coastline. Um, so um, there's great photos of, you know, if you hook two locomotives together, it's called a double header. So there's great photos of a double header coming, I think out of Cowan with a long fuel train behind it. And also there's one out of Chattanooga too. Uh, but it was kind of one way for, um, the railroads to help out when the the coastal services couldn't. Uh, also, new camps were forming, like Camp Forest in Tullahoma was created for World War II, and I think that is where they um, practiced maneuvers that would eventually lead to the D-Day invasion was in uh, uh, Camp Forest. So a lot of them trained down there in Camp Forest and then were eventually moved out over to Normandy. Oh, very cool. So what was the, how many trains were there for passenger use in Nashville? I wrote this somewhere. I, I forgot my list of notes, but it was somewhere between, in the height of rail travel, it was between like 30 and 50 trains a day served Nashville. And that was both your premier luxury trains, like the Dixie Flyer, Dixie Limited, that sort of thing, as well as the more commuter work trains that were just going from Nashville to the outlying communities and the, the various factories, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a constant influx of people both coming and going through Union Station at the height of uh, the rail travel. 
Why, why do you think Nashville doesn't have a passenger line now? Like we have the Nashville star, but it's not, it's not anything like a big deal, like Amtrak type situation. So why don't you think Nashville has a passenger line connecting to other cities right now? So by the time um, at the end of what we call revenue passenger traffic, which was when the independent railroads ran them, they were really a shadow of their former selves. The luxury, the, the, you know, the fine china, the, the linen tables for the most part were gone. Um, they had just kind of given way to the interstate system and the airlines. And if you go back and look at the records, passenger traffic never made money. Like it made some money, but it was always the freight traffic that made the profits for the railroads. Now the passenger traffic is, you know, what put your name out there to the various you know, companies, that sort of thing. So it was important to keep them um, presentable and also offer the best service as possible. But as people started turning away from passenger trains, the railroads saw it as an opportunity to just get out of the passenger market altogether and focus on the profitable freight traffic. So um, when Amtrak took over in the 1970s, they went through and started um, severing off the purely non-profitable lines and tried to maintain as many as possible of the lines or the routes that uh, were you know, most popular, could maybe turn a profit, you know, a few actually did. But uh, in 1971, uh, Nashville was on the Floridian route, which was Chattanooga, or not Chattanooga uh, Chicago to, I think, Miami um, by way of Birmingham. So actually cut off Chattanooga altogether, went through Birmingham, Montgomery, and then over down to Florida. Um, and that train was consistently late and always was breaking down on the road. So it was never reliable. So Nashvilleian's last taste of passenger, inner city passenger rail was the Floridian. So, you know, people will talk about how they love taking the Floridian now, but at the time, you know, if your train was, you know, six, 12 hours late, that's going to leave a bad taste in your mouth and think, well, I'll just, I could have just driven that, or I could have just flown that. So in 1976-ish, or maybe, no, 79, 1979, they pulled uh, the Floridian from Amtrak. So they shut down passenger service to Nashville altogether. Um, so because of that, once you lose Amtrak or passenger service, it is nearly impossible to get it back. Um, now there has been discussion past couple of years about Amtrak's interest in restarting a line from Nashville to Atlanta, which would then connect to their current Crescent route, which goes from Washington DC to New Orleans. Um, but again, with Amtrak, you have to have um, uh, shareable tracks with a host railroad, and that would be CSX. And you still have the same issues that even the in Nashville and Chattanooga came up with in 1845 of the hills and making them uh, worthy again of of the high speeds and the uh, and the that that are needed to make the trains run efficiently. So you know, is it possible we get Amtrak back? Yes, and you know. For, for me personally, I hope so. But at the same time, there's a lot of steps to go through and a lot of money um, to be collected and, and, and spent, you know, efficiently to make that happen. Uh, speaking of a lot of money, what's the possibility of getting a bullet train uh, sometime in Nashville, maybe in the next like 50 years? <sighs> that is a great question. And honestly, I just do not have the answer. Um, right now, the only quote unquote, high speed train service that exists in um, the United States is in the Northeast, uh, where there's, you know, several major cities back to back, starting in DC, going up to Boston, uh, with Philadelphia, New York, and all those other cities in between. Now, there is Brightline in Florida, which is a new private passenger rail company that's using higher speed trains. Um, but for high speed to happen at all, it would require a great deal of um, both effort and desire in this country to see that happen. So it really, I wish I could give you an answer of like, you know, 2045, we'll have it. But um, it really just kind of depends on what we want at the time. So you work for an organization called Nashville STEAM. What exactly is Nashville STEAM? So we are a, uh, I'm a volunteer. Um, I work through um, the uh, 
desire of seeing number 576, the steam locomotive run again. Um, but Nashville Steam Preservation Society formed in 2015 um, with the goal of restoring steam locomotive number 576 and CNCL number 576 uh, back to operation. And number 576 was the locomotive that was on display in Centennial Park for more than 65 years. And currently it's sitting over at the Tennessee Central Railway Museum, completely broken down with active repairs taking place. Uh, with the eventual goal of running uh, special steam powered excursions out of downtown Nashville. When, uh, how close are you guys to that goal? So with any major steam locomotive restoration, it's all dependent on funding. So again, I wish I could give you a, you know, we'll be up and running by October 25th of 2022. That's, you know, very much not, you know, I hope it happens. It may happen, but we just don't know at this point. So right now we um, have estimated about a $2.8 million restoration. Um, now to date, we are right around $2 million that has been raised uh, since 2016 when we first started publicly fundraising. Um, in spite of the uh, pandemic last year, um, we were thankfully able to raise a total of $650,000 to go towards the restoration. Uh, that was due in large part to a um, matching grant opportunity that was uh, granted to us at the end of 2019. Um, and that was by the Candelaria Fund and the Wick Mormon Foundation. And they uh, came to us, they, they are, the heads of those organizations are very much involved with our project. Uh, but they said, they offered us the chance, if you can raise, we will match any donation, grant, award, or monetary award um, of $1,000 or more up to $300,000. And if we were able to do that before the end of 2020, um, they we would receive a $50,000 bonus. So, and we were able to do that um, thanks to, in, in large part to our, you know, thousands and thousands of uh, supporters and donors out there. Um, because of the pandemic, we did have to get a bit more creative um, with how to raise that money because we couldn't have any physical events or that sort of thing. Um, so thankfully, uh, Marty Stewart and Old Crow Medicine Show stepped up and offered their time and their talents to do a virtual concert for us uh, to raise that final about $5,000 to reach the $300,000 and get the $50,000 bonus. Um, so within the start of the concert, within a couple hours after, we had raised over $10,000 um, towards the restoration effort in large part to them. and and offering you know, their services. And it was an incredible show um, that we actually were able to do it in the shop with the steam locomotive in the background, which was pretty unique. Um, we had you know, fake steam and, and cool lighting, that sort of thing, but that was a really fun event. Uh, so what's the history behind uh, Locomotive 576? Sure. So um, first I wanna start with the Centennial Exposition because that's what really paves the way for us being able to work on 576 now. So, um, as I said, um, Major John Thomas uh, and uh, Major Eugene Lewis, um, both with the NCN St. L Railroad, were tasked or given the responsibility of planning and organizing the Tennessee Centennial Exposition. And I'm not sure if it was if they were responsible for choosing the property, but the where Centennial Park is today, where the exposition took place is just south of where the NC and St. L had their locomotive shops back in the day. So um, they had the roundhouse there, the uh, passenger car house, transfer table, that sort of thing. So, you know, all this giant exposition of you know, all these incredible buildings and, and activities and, you know, things to do and see were going on. Right there in the back, you had the smoke and the sounds of steam locomotives being operated on, coming and going. But because of that, there was enough infrastructure there to have a stop there at Centennial Park or Centennial Exposition, I think they called it Centennial City. Uh, so for trains to drop off people directly at the exposition. So it was really intertwined uh, with the railroad itself. They had a transportation building. They exhibited there um, the Pullman, latest Pullman car, which was the you know five-star uh, hotel on wheels at the time, uh, other historic, and locomotives also, but the new stuff as well to kind of showcase 
the ever-evolving machinery of the railroad. So because of the success of the exposition, learned and due in large part by the railroads, uh, that space was such beloved by the people of Nashville, it became a city park and Centennial Park today. So if you fast forward to 1940, the NCNL was in very much wanting a new class of steam locomotive to pull their trains. Because of the hostile takeover and um, the LNN really controlling the funding of the NCNL, they were a very frugal company. So they were not like, if you've heard of the Pennsylvania, the New York Central with their premier trains like the Broadway Limited, 20th Century Limited. They had the Dixie Flyer, which was a nice uh, train from Chicago to uh, Miami. Um, it was, but it was never really, they were never really known for that red carpet service, if that makes sense. So their equipment, their, old, their steam locomotives were older by this point. They were kind of showing their age. The last new locomotive they had bought was about 10 years old by this point. Um, so C.M. Darden, who was the uh, mechanical superintendent of the railroad, really wanted to kind of make this, you know, he wanted to make it as, as good as he could. This, this locomotive was kind of the, you know, the key or the, the height of steam technology. Darden himself had a lot of patents um, in the steam locomotive or steam mechanics back then. So he really knew what he was doing. So they designed what would become the J3 uh, class of locomotive, which is a 484 type. And that means four wheels up front, eight driver wheels in the middle, and then four wheels in the back to support the uh, weight of the firebox in the, in the back head. Um, and it was heavily borrowed from the J2 locomotive, which Darden had also designed back in 1930, but improved and also given a streamlined or semi-streamlined um, uh, appearance by adding a bullet nose, uh, wide skirts along the, along the running board, a swing out coupler on the front to really give it kind of that bullet streamlined appearance. And it was really one of those, like if you had driven you know, I don't want to be disparaging to any car company, but if you had driven a used car for, you know, 15 years or so, this was like getting a Cadillac. I think even back then, um, the, in, the engine men referred to it as the Cadillac of steam locomotives because they were just that impressed by the J3s. So 576 was um, one of the first 10 ordered. They were ordered in 1940 and they took a year. Excuse me, they were, they were uh, ordered in 1941. It took a year to manufacture. It was built in August of 42 and delivered from the American Locomotive Company from Schenectady, New York. So it was, so, it was, it was built during the war. Yes, it was built during wow. the war. Okay. Um, so, but because they ordered it before um, Pearl Harbor, the um, streamlined elements were allowed to be kept on the locomotive. Now, the locomotives performed so well when they first arrived that the railroad company immediately ordered 10 more to uh, supplement um, the uh, high demand from World War II and all the mobilization that was going on. So with that order, they limited the additional elements that had been on the first 10. So the first 10 uh, with the wide skirting and the yellow uh, scheme were called yellow jackets. The second 10 with that wide skirting removed, but they still had a yellow stripe, were called yellow stripes or stripes by the railroad crews. So they performed you know, extremely well. They were built specifically for this terrain, the terrain of this railroad, the, the curves, um, and also the kind of shorter wheelbase. Um, if you were to uh, look at other locomotives that similar class, this one's actually fairly compact or small. Doesn't look like that when you're standing next to it, uh, but other 484s of the time were bigger, especially with bigger tenders um, with, uh, that could haul more coal and water. Um, but with the NCN Sainel, they had already had their coal stations you know, set up along the line. So they knew how much coal they could get from you know, point A to point B to refill, that sort of thing. Um, so the uh, NC and St. used these locomotives. They were the pride of the fleet. The, and the employees really loved these things because it was really the first time the company 
splurged a bit to bring them or give them the latest in everything they could. So um, in 1950, well, in the early 1950s, the company was at the point where they needed to order some more steam locomotives to supplement what they had, or they could make the decision that since they had such a hodgepodge of equipment to go ahead and get rid of the steam altogether and just fully invest in new diesel electric locomotives. And so that's what they did. They were one of the first uh, railroad companies in the south, uh, Southeast to fully dieselize and they were fully dieselized by 1952. So um, all of the steam locomotives were um, sent over to the shops in Nashville. Some of them were scrapped, some of them were kept on reserve. 576 was one of the locomotives kept on reserve. Uh, in case something were to happen, you know, out on the road, they could just fire that up, went up really quick, you know, go out to wherever the train was and, you know, keep it going. Um, and a employee of the shops, who's also a city councilman, was visiting family in Memphis. And while there, he saw a steam engine that belonged to the Frisco Railroad had been saved and donated to the city of Memphis and put on the public display. Well, knowing what the J3s meant to um, the railroad and you know his, his uh, friends that worked there, they wanted to save one and really keep it for posterity uh, for the people of Nashville. So, you know, what for whatever reason, for whatever mystic powers that you know be happened back then, 576 was the one that was selected, probably because it had been worked on to to be used as a reserve locomotive, so it was in the best shape, best presentable shape. Um, the company took it off the scrap line, put it in the roundhouse, they cleaned it up, gave it a new paint job, and they really pushed it into the park, um, basically ready to be fired up. Uh, when we acquired the lease to restore the locomotive, um, the sand dome on top of the locomotive, um, that they use sand for traction in the case of slippery or wet rail, uh, it was full of 280 yeah, we're not the industrial size barrels, you know, there, there was enough sand to fill two of those. So I mean, it was put in there, you know, with still with coal, still a little bit in the tender, that sort of things. So, I mean, it was, it was put in there ready to go, but also they took their time to what we call mothball it and ensure it could be on display for a long term uh, without having too much damage from the elements. So <clears throat> with all that, so it was at, it was at Centennial Park for 65 years. Is that what you said? Yeah, 65 years. 65 years. And then what was the process of saying, hey, we want to restore this and actually make this a train for excursions throughout Middle Tennessee? So um, throughout the history of 576 being at the park, there were maybe four, around four attempts to actually um, relocate it and restore it to operation. But the people of Nashville were so protective of it that it never got past the uh, Metro Parks Board of Directors. Um, so when, um, gosh, a few years ago, uh, the parks announced their plan to kind of, um, a master plan for Centennial Park. It's really kind of, you know, updated, keep it, you know, relevant. I think it's probably, probably Nashville's favorite park, my most used park. So they wanted to make some changes to, you know, keep the longevity and the use, potential use of Centennial Park. Well, when that plan was revealed, uh, I think maybe phase three or four called for 576 to be relocated from where it was put on display, put in a different corner of the park and that area be turned into an outdoor amphitheater. So, um, with that, several of people from our organization um, kind of came together to say, okay, if this is going to happen, it's really going to be now because this thing is moving anyway. Um, it's at a point where it's in good shape, but if we don't do something soon, the critical components could deteriorate to a point where they couldn't be restored. Also, the success of both the uh, Nashville in Eastern uh, Railroad and the Music City Star, as well as the Tennessee Central Railway Museum offering excursions on that stretch of track for the past 30 years or so, 
um, the stars really aligned at that point to where uh, we approached the board um, with a plan, you know, to say, you know, this is what you have, this is what we want to do, this is how we want to work together. Um, and to show um, how committed we were, we agreed that before the locomotive could be relocated from the park, we would raise $500,000 um, to cover the relocation costs, as well as keep $100,000 in escrow, just for any kind of future sort of thing. But also to show, you know, we weren't just a bunch of crazy, you know, train nuts, which we are, but, you know, we actually know what we're talking about. We have a business plan. We uh, really want to make this an ambassador for the city of Nashville and really use it as a living, learning, um, tangible piece of Nashville's history. Um, so we met with the board, they were supportive and it tracked through the entire approval process. Uh, the Metro Council gave us full unanimous support of the lease. Sorry, I have a furry roommate. Um, so we acquired the lease for 576 um, in August of 2016 and just in earnest started raising money from there. And while raising money, we did work sessions in Centennial Park um, on select about every other Saturday or so, Friday, Saturday, on just projects we could work on that didn't require too much, um, you know, noise, that sort of thing. Um, and so we, we use that as a chance to talk to people, introduce them to the locomotive, what we're doing. Because if you went to go visit the locomotive, um, you just really didn't have the context of you know, what it was, what it did, you know, what it offered for, to the city of Nashville. Because when it was first moved there, you had the shops right there to the north. So you could still hear the trains going by, being work being done on the locomotives and the cars. And the main line still cuts, cuts through um, just north of the park. And if you're, if you're there, you can see trains go by, you know, a few times a day. But by the 2000s, office buildings have been built between the rail line and the park. And if you weren't here back in the 40s, 30s, 50s, you'd have no idea that's where the shops at the NCNCNL used to be located because when it merged with the LNN, the LNN just tore all that down because that would just surplus facilities for them. They didn't need that stuff. So, um, so when while we were there, we could, you know, could tell that story and why 576 mattered to the city and what we wanted to do with it. So once it's fully restored, what are excursions going to look like? So our goal is to operate um, excursions out of downtown Nashville and go. Our principal location will, will more than likely be Watertown, Tennessee. Um, and that's along the Nashville Eastern Route, but past where the Music City Star currently ends, because it currently ends in Lebanon. So you get to go beyond Lebanon to Watertown. And if you've never been to Watertown, um, it's a great town that's really has preserved the historic nature and character of their downtown. Um, they, it's a bit major stop for the current Tennessee Central excursions, one of their, their main go-tos. But what's uh, really incredible about you know, our, our operations at Watertown is uh, they received a turntable from CSX Railroad that's currently waiting to be reinstalled in Watertown. And this particular turntable um, was actually built for the J3 class locomotive, which is what number 576 is. It's an original NCNCNL turntable that came from their yard in Atlanta, Georgia. So CSX had, um, I think, sold off that property and they were getting, they were clearing off all the uh, yard tracks and everything. The turntable was left over. So they donated the, that original NCNCNL turntable to Watertown. So the turntable that originally turned 576 and her sisters back in the you know, 40s, is going to turn 576 again back when both locomotive is operational and the turntable is reinstalled and operational. That's, that's so a really, really unique um, venture to not only go from you know, a major urban city out to the country, more rural town, but then also use the turntable that the locomotive was built for. That, that's incredible. How do you transport a turntable? That's, <laughs> that's a, again, very carefully. Yeah. <laughs> um, we uh, were, um, Mammut uh, is a company, it's, an, it's a global company 
and they do heavy lifting. Um, and they were absolutely phenomenal to work with when we moved the locomotive out of the park because they also moved the turntable. Um, so it was, it's, it's, you know, as fate happens, both the locomotive and turntable were moved from their locations on the same week and weekend. Oh, so wow. kind of their new chance of life really kind of happened at the same time. How, how much does so, the locomotive weigh? It weighs, I think, around 300,000 pounds altogether. Okay. So around there, about 150 tons. Um, and I couldn't tell you what the turntable weighed, but it required two cranes to lift it out and then set it down and then set it on a special heavy-duty trailer. Um that it actually, once the turntable was dropped off, it came over and picked up the locomotive's tender or coal car, and that's what transported the tender out of Centennial Park. Okay, so how long did it take from uh, picking it up and moving it from Centennial Park all the way to the Tennessee Central uh, Railway Museum? So for the um, for, for out of the park, it took about a week, well, several months of prep work. Um, and then once the work started happening, it took a full week, went from, from Monday when everything was started to Sunday when we actually moved the locomotive out of the park. Um, first, um, temporary panel track had to be installed in front of the locomotive. They uh, rolled the engine onto this temporary panel track and then they raised the locomotive removed the panel track and then moved in a remote controlled, um, uh, it's called a trailer, uh, for, but it's, every axle was independently motorized. So there's no semi attached to it. They could just move it on its own, you know, with its own mechanics. Um, so from there, the rail was removed underneath the tender after it was jacked up. And then the trailer came in underneath the, tra- uh, the tender and it was lowered. Um, and the first couple of days were great weather-wise. Um, it was, you know, partly cloudy, sunny, high 50s, low 60s. They got so much done those first couple of days. And then similar to what happened about a week or, or a few weeks ago, um, the, the temperature just dropped out. Uh, no ice, thankfully, but it just became, you know, temperature in the teens, low 20s. And uh, it just kind of, that kind of delayed us in a couple of things, but luckily everything came through when it needed to come through and we hit our um, departure time of early Sunday morning. Um, And then while we moved out of the park and then down Charlotte Pike, we had a team of utility workers and trucks kind of leapfrogging one another um, to ensure that they could raise the cables so the locomotive could pass underneath them without causing any sort of you know, delays or, or issues for the electric or power or cable companies. Um, and, you know, we, we knew what a big deal to see Locomotive 576 leave would be. So, you know, we advertised it, all the news, you know, stations covered it. And so um, the morning of, of course, it was cold and rainy and overcast, but still we had at least, you know, a few hundred people come out that line Charlotte Pike just to see 576 rolling down to the Nashville and Western Railroad. So it was unloaded there, and then it took a couple more days to unload um, the locomotive, get get it back square on the rails. And so over there, it sat underneath the uh, interstate overpass for about six weeks while we could do more prep work to get it railworthy, get the brakes working. So in March, uh, actually uh, March 9th, is when um, CSX Railroad um, hooked up to the 576 and towed it across town over to Union Station. And they actually offered us the chance to stop it at Union Station for the day. Um, And so we could have an event there with 576 returning to Union Station for the first time since the 1950s. Uh, Yeah, I think I actually have a photo of that, uh, of that event. I think I I I have a photo of that somewhere in my archives. Yeah, it's an incredible day. Um, Again, the weather did not cooperate a uh, storm line came through midday and kind of uh, rained on our parade, if you will. But luckily, I mean, you know, locomotive looks good in the rain or shine. So, and it, it was there next to Union Station. So, so it was an event that so many people thought they would never be able to see, you know, happen that day. And it, it's just really one of the highlights of what we've done so far. That's very cool. How could people give uh, fiscally to the restoration process? 
Uh, we have a website, nashvillesteam.org, and they can certainly donate through that. Or you can mail a check uh, to the Nashville Steam Preservation Society, uh, 220 Willow Street, uh, Nashville, at 37210. Um, there's also other ways if you want to reach out directly. We have uh, emails and everything on the website. Um, and we are happy to work with anyone in terms of you know, if they want to donate monetarily or if they have you know, services maybe they can offer. It's amazing how many groups and companies have really come out to help bring this piece of Nashville back to life. Um, it, it really resonates just across the board with, you know, people having an interest in railroads and steam locomotives. Well, Joey, thank you so much for coming on the Nashville story. We'll definitely have you on again soon to talk more about the restoration process and when we can start taking excursions with the steam engine locomotive. Absolutely. We're hopeful the next, if funding remains consistent, about two and a half years, uh, we'll be up and running again with the steam locomotive. And also we're hoping to have more public in-person events now that uh, the vaccine is getting out there and, and hopefully life is returning to normal next couple in the next year. Um, we are having an open house uh, Saturday, April 10th, in conjunction with the Tennessee Central Railway Museum. Um, the locomotive and shop will be open to the public, so you can come out and see the uh, progress. No work will be going on on the locomotive, but we'll be there staffed with volunteers that do work on the locomotive. It can work or it can answer any and all questions about the history of the railroad or, you know, our future operations. And that was Joey Bryan, the historian and communications manager of Nashville Steam. You can learn more about the restoration of Locomotive 576 by heading to their website, nashvillesteam.org. You can also visit it in person by visiting the Tennessee Central Railway Museum that's located near downtown Nashville. Thank you for listening to the Nashville story. Head over to Instagram and give us a follow at xplr.nash. You can also buy some Nashville themed merch at xplr.life. We'll see you on Monday.